Welcome to season three of Instant Coffee. I'm Nadine Almanasfi. And I'm Sima Shihab. And this latest season is an exploration of technology and its developments in the region. Beyond the emergence of ChatGPT and Sophia the Robot, we wanted to speak with people who are applying, adapting, and reimagining technology in their fields. We will be exposed to medieval Islamic hospitals, failed Gulf techno cities, emerging Iraqi fintech startups, inclusive artificial intelligence, and much more. This episode explores how technology has been used by and for refugees and migrants, both in the region and in the diaspora. We unpack technology's ambivalences, to quote one of our guests, Yanar Bayramulu, and talk through what agency looks like in relation to humanitarian aid and media technologies. Our first guest, Rim Talhuk, is an assistant professor in design and global development at Northumbria University. I'm Reem. I am from Lebanon. I'm an assistant professor in design and global development at Northumbria University, where I also co-lead the Design Feminisms Research Group and lead the Global Development Futures Hub. Most of my work sits within design and human-computer interaction. And what I do mostly is work with communities that are considered to be on the margins to design technologies and counter-narratives with a focus on humanitarianism as well as activism and social movements. Most of my work has been in the MENA region, it's home, and so I always find myself going back to it, both with my work and my emotions, feelings, and thoughts. Thanks for that intro, Reem. Can you tell us a bit more about design technology and also walk us through your approach to design technology in the context of humanitarian aid? My approach, and I think because... I come at design also from a research perspective. What I um, mostly use is participatory design with refugees and communities. So rather than starting from the needs assessments and the humanitarian systems, I start with and from the refugee communities. And so what we do is we design technologies that kind of fulfill their visions of how they view humanitarian technologies. And in doing so, what we also generate is these critiques of existing technologies, because what we show is how these technologies can be designed and configured otherwise in a way that gives refugees more agency in how they want to use these technologies and why they want to use them, or even if they don't want to use them. And so participatory design lets you do that, especially because what I use is participatory design with a capital P, with the P signifying and acknowledging that technologies are political and that the way we design technologies in itself is political. And so that's how we generate the research knowledge and the counter narratives through the design process. And why did you feel the need to pivot away from the mainstream approaches? What was wrong with them? I think it's it's mainstream technology in the humanitarian setting, but also situated in this wider context of how the humanitarian system works. Like there's been a lot of research surrounding the IKEA shelters, um, Plumpina, how a lot of times in acute crises, humanitarian systems are configured towards efficient, effective, quick, right? Quick aid as quickly as possible. But once you're in a protracted situation, what we really need to be asking ourselves is, well, how do our technologies create spaces for freedoms, for capabilities, for resilience, for dignity? And so I think the issue that we have is that the humanitarian system 
And in turn, then the technologies that come out of it are very much geared towards, right, we need to be as efficient as possible. And efficiency is good, but not on the long run when we're working towards shifting objectives, shifting social and political objectives, where we need to slow down and think of, well, how are we creating spaces for refugees to come together, take action and and have a voice? Mm. And so can you give us some examples of how the humanitarian aid system as it stands is currently failing refugees? The, the example that I always go back to, and I think because that one's like the clearest one, is the World Food Program's e-voucher system. It gives re- refugees like a debit card per household, right, that they can use to only buy food. The fact that they can only buy food with it is because it's more of a funder prerogative to say, well, I only want my aid to be used for food and not for use for other things. And I think there's a whole other debate about cash assistance versus um, non-cash assistance and so on. And so when I worked with um, Syrian refugees in the Bihar Valley, they were saying, well, one, we need to sometimes purchase non-food items. That was like a clear thing. But also they were questioning, well, why is it that it's given to us per household. We want to, as a community, buy in bulk and benefit from the discounts of that. And our e-voucher systems don't really, it's not easy to do that, right? It's not easy for us to pool everything that we have together. And so that shows like this clear disconnect between what the technology enables for humanitarian organizations and then in doing that, what it disables refugees to do. Margaret Cheesman has done a lot of work as well on digital wallets in um, Zatari camp in Jordan, her and the refugees she was working with pointed to is that a lot of the refugees don't know how much money they have in these accounts because they don't have access to them in a way that you and I have access to our bank accounts. And so you can see how those disconnects take away those powers and capabilities from refugees to use the technologies and the aid in the way that they want to use them. And so... How can we understand the objectives of these mainstream humanitarian aid systems if, as you say, the refugee doesn't seem to be centred in their design? Mm -hmm. So I think here it's important to have a bit of an overview of these mainstream approaches. So when humanitarian innovation, specifically technological innovation, kind of became a thing, what we saw is that humanitarian organizations partnered with these private design companies such as IDEO and also technology organizations, Facebook, Google, you name it. And they adopted this user-centered approach. And user-centered approach for designing technologies comes from a very consumerist and commercial stemming. So it's about designing a technology so that it is usable so that people buy it. And, and that has a lot of connotations with it. And then we saw a shift towards human-centered design. Human-centered design says, well, people aren't just users. They're humans with motivations, aspirations, and also our individuals are contending with the social, political, and economic challenges that we all are facing in many ways. So that was like the, the second shift. And then we're now, we're seeing a small, slight nudge towards refugee-centered design, where it tries to account for experiences of displacement, um, refugees, and kind of tries to work with an understanding of the humanitarian system. I think 
In the mainstream approaches, it's important to kind of remember that, yes, refugees are sometimes the, they're the end users, right? They're the ones that are going to be using those technologies, but they're not the people paying for them. It's the funders that are paying for them. So it creates a quasi-market where a lot of the humanitarian organizations that are doing technological innovation are contending with these competing demands, right? So demands for accountability, is a lot of the reason why we have refugee reg- ID registration, biometric registration, right? It's because funders were like, well, we want to know that our aid is going to the people, even though the data shows that there's not a lot of loss um, in terms on the beneficiary and it's further up in the supply chain that aid is, monetary aid is being lost. And so by instead situating myself and my work within refugee communities, it starts with, well, what do the refugees and the communities, what do they want? And how do they want to use these technologies? And then we work our way back to, right, how do we then fulfill a bit of what the other stakeholders want? And it's just that simple shift of starting point that makes all the difference. Reappropriation of technology to center and start with the people who are going to be using the technology, in Lim's case, refugees, is one dimension of the conversation. But understanding the way people actually take control of the technology themselves is another approach we wanted to explore in this episode. Yanar Bayramulu, Assistant Professor in Digital Media at York University, talks us through this approach in relation to migrant and refugee communities. I think it's very important to document the inequalities, but there is also the danger that that kind of interest reproduces this stereotypical understanding of migrants as always suffering subjects, but never as political subjects with agency, raising their voices against, you know, global inequalities. So we rarely hear that kind of stories in the scholarship, but also in general, in general public discussions or or in mainstream media. So that's why my interest in digital media emerged, because if you want to look at, you know, what migrants do against racism or against the current border regimes, you end up inevitably uh, exploring digital media because migrants and diasporic subjects, they quite often use uh, these different technologies to raise their voices, to document their stories and to create new form of visualities and narratives So they become a political subject. This was the reason why I ended up basically looking at, you know, digital media and its meaning for migrants. Thank you for that. So it it is quite similar to Reem, who we spoke with earlier, in that you are carving out a different way of understanding media studies in relation to refugees and migrants. My research interests are based mostly on media and communication. I try to understand what role particularly digital media, but also different media formats play, for instance, for migrants, but also for different vulnerable groups and minorities. So in that sense, I am more, I do more critical media and communication studies. I try to understand what kind of inequalities exist in societies and how these inequalities are interlinked with different media and communication infrastructures. Can I ask what it would look like when these vulnerable communities do take control of the documentation of their lives through technology? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, in order to understand that, maybe we could first talk about, you know, what kind of representations are circulated in general public or in 
mainstream media, you know, when we look at the media, media representations of migrants or refugees crossing borders, we always see, see this dualism. They either are represented as danger for European order, social and economic order, or they are seen as a victim of a humanitarian catastrophe. When we think about refugees in the Mediterranean Sea, one particular image would always come up in our minds. When we shift our attention away from this uh, very loud and bold media representations to those ones created by migrants, we see different kind of narratives. So migrants use their smartphones, for instance, to document their own journey. When they cross Mediterranean Sea, they document their uh, journey. And we see in these uh, videos a different kind of narrative. Uh, we see, for instance, migrants basically celebrating and singing and even sunbathing or watching the dolphins when they cross the Mediterranean Sea. Or when they arrive in the European continent, they basically celebrate this because, you know, despite all the European border pol uh, policies, they managed to arrive in Europe. So this is clearly, you know, a reason to celebrate. And we don't see this kind of images, for instance, in media, because they do not fit typical humanitarian understanding, because uh, all those NGOs and charity organizations, they need actually images of migrants suffering. But they also trouble the border policies, because nations and supranational uh, institutions such as European Union do not want to see that borders are transcended, are easily transcended. Migrants also use smartphones to document illegal acts, such as the pushbacks. We saw, for instance, you know, we always see these kind of videos done by migrants, how, for instance, Greek border patrols shoot fire on rubber uh, boats. Like we saw also uh, videos done by migrants crossing the border between Turkey and Bulgaria, how Bulgarian police attacked by, you know, shooting fire. So they document also this kind of illegal acts. And these videos uh, later on get also circulated in the mainstream media. So the journalists use these kind of videos to shift the attention to the illegal pushbacks. So it, this kind of visual does not only stay on social media platforms, but they also become later on part of mainstream uh, media, such as news reports. And part of your work also looks at LGBTQI refugees. Is there ever a fear from these communities about the dangers of technology or of being overly documented, even if they are the ones doing the documentation? Yes, yes, this is also very interesting because this is a story that is rarely documented. And we know, particularly when we talk about, for instance, history of queer migration, we don't have any documents in the archives. And in recent years, particularly in Germany, uh, queer migrants started using these technologies to document and create new archives about queer migration history. I took part, actually, in one of the, this kind of projects, which was called Muddy Ancestors, which was based on conducting oral history with queer migrants um, to you know, document the history of queer migration, which is also a completely new narrative and new stories. In, in academic discussions, for instance, in queer theoretical discussions, queerness is always understood as ephemeral. You know, it's like momentary. It comes and goes. It's very difficult to 
document and then suddenly uh, I witnessed you know that kind of a moment uh, this person wanted to be actually you know momentary ephemeral and was against uh, documenting this and you know when you document it's not only about you know you leave a trace for the entire history but there's also you know these all these technologies they have an ambivalent meaning because they're part of this surveillance capitalism you know all this data are collected and archived in that sense we should be always also careful before romanticizing the digital technologies because unfortunately it's not anymore all this you know anarchist uh, times when they were all thinking internet will be this utopian place and we know that also you know uh, nations they increasingly are using digital technologies to track and collect data of migrants and people crossing the borders so we've spoken quite a bit about how when refugees and migrants take control of technology when they utilize smartphones and document their lives We've looked at the effect this has had on media narratives and the external world to them. But maybe we can talk a bit more about the effect it's having on themselves and this idea of, or this theory of affect that you use. Yes, uh, but before that, I would like to add one more thing uh, about about smartphone. There is a really uh, exciting book written by Paul Gilroy. Paul Gilroy talks about, in this book, uh, The Black Atlantic, talks about how gramophone created a formation of black diaspora on two sides of the Atlantic. So gramophone basically functioned as this infrastructure that helped, you know, creating a distinct diaspora culture and thus distinct diasporic belonging and sense of, you know, belonging to a community in these two sides of the Atlantic. And I think a similar thing is happening now with particularly the new generation of migrants through smartphone. So there is a smart, I would say, a smartphone diaspora. A smartphone is functioning as a as this infrastructure that helps migrants to get integrated, but also create a new form of culture and create a new form of you know community in uh, places such as London and Berlin. It's very important to talk about ambi- ambivalences, but also not to forget you know very bold meaning of these technologies for diaspora formation. And thank you for that, because that was actually really interesting. And I think it ties really well into this question about affect and how smartphone technology is transforming migrants and refugees in the diaspora themselves. You know, I talked in the beginning about all these videos created by refugees crossing the Mediterranean Sea. They uh, have also a very important affective meaning because they are not trying to trigger emotions such as fear or panic or empathy, uh, which is always the case in mainstream media. You know, when when they talk about borders and refugees, all these videos show emotions such as, you know, happiness and joy. If you shift your attention away from mainstream media to this kind of visuality narrative that created by smartphones and digital media, you end up seeing this kind of emotions. And also maybe uh, it would be interesting to talk about also hope and hopelessness, uh, because when I was doing my uh, fieldwork in Berlin, I was also conducting interviews and it was right before the Turkish elections. You could observe a sense of hope. People were very hopeful that the government will change and the situation 
the, the LGBT issues and the repression of LGBTIQ will end in Turkey. Many queer migrants that I interviewed, they even had the hope of going back to Turkey. And I would even say there was not only hope, but also a celebration as if, you know, Erdogan have, has already lost the election. So everyone was like so sure that the things will change. And you could see right after the election, there was a huge hopelessness and anger. I, I sense that not only during the interviews, but also on all these, you know, Instagram posts and all this like online communication done by the migrant NGOs, uh, there was this, you know, sense of hopelessness and uh, this realization that, you know, situation might even worsen over the next years. From Raymond Yenner's own research and experience working with these vulnerable communities, we wanted to ask them what they thought was needed to build more agent-centered and empowering systems. Uh, this is a really good question and also a question that I, I need to think about it. For instance, a border regime is increasingly becoming digitalized. I mentioned briefly about you know, biometric cards and fingerprints. This is also not only becoming increasingly digitalized, but also taken for granted. You're basically forced to give all your data at the border. And this is argued that otherwise it will be difficult to detect the person. But this is very much entangled with racism and racialization. Also, we are increasingly witnessing states uh, demanding social media presence to see, you know, what you have done in the past. And um, so it becomes also part of the surveillance. And also when we think about LGBTIQ refugees, this increasing digitalization is also forcing them to basically create a certain visibility in their platforms, social media platforms. So when they apply for asylum in the future, the institutions will see their queer presence. It, it, you know, social media becomes increasingly part of a, like a proof system. This is, you know, a problematic area that we need to think about. I think what we really need to be talking about is how do we break away from Western notions and designs of technologies and support technological innovation that speaks of and with our ways of engaging with the challenges um, that we have. And, and it's quite complex. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not, again, kind of reflecting back on Lebanon, where I'm from, it's hard to do that when you don't have electricity all the time. It's hard to do that when the internet is slow. But I think the future is gonna be really kind of contending with our infrastructural challenges that we have in the region, but as well as um, diaspora feeding into kind of this re-envisioning of technologies within the region. Reappropriation is brilliant. It, it, it means what you're doing is taking a technology that you didn't have it to invest that much money into the design of it and rework it for your purposes. But then it all depends on how open are these technologies for reappropriation. And so I think until we push towards asking for technologies to be used for, for us to act with rather than technologies being used to act upon us, 
we're still we're going to be within this vicious cycle so just looking at the technological trends of artificial intelligence i think one of the things that we should be doing as um technology designers in the region and researchers in the region is really asking well what does an arabic mina ai system look like how how does it um, look like and feel like, right? And not just in the language that it uses, but how do we use it to serve the purposes that we want and rather than serve the purposes of the companies, the governments, and so on. Thank you to Rima Yenner for speaking with us. Despite their research taking place in different contexts, they both centered the importance of ensuring refugees and migrants are given the technological tools to control their own paths and to collaborate as equals in thinking more long-term about future prospects, both in the region and in the diaspora. To learn more about Reem and Yenner's work, follow the link in the podcast description. Join us every other Tuesday for a new episode of Instant Coffee.